I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka Sounds of Science. Every decade, we learn more about cancer, and every year, new cancer drugs are approved. Oncology is an area of great concern to medical researchers. So where are we today when it comes to fighting cancer? Justin Bryans and Elizabeth Anderson both work in early discovery in our Saffron Walden facility in the UK and have agreed to lend their expertise to give me an update on oncology. Welcome, Justin and Elizabeth. Hello. 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 Thank you. (laughs) Thank you both for being here. Uh, Can we start with a little bit of background on each of you? How did you decide to get into this industry? Elizabeth, you want to start? Yes, I've always been involved in cancer research right from the very beginning when I left university and first started off in an academic environment, but worked quite closely with uh, other drug companies and then made the switch across to drug discovery many years ago and worked in large companies and small companies working on all aspects of uh, cancer research. Do you find you have a preference between the academic and the more practical applications? (laughs) (laughs) I like both actually so the academic allows you to get very deeply into a a subject but the Mm -hmm. drug discovery part means that you're developing you know there's a more direct route to helping patients although I did work quite a lot in translational research beforehand and worked on bits of patients as well as (laughs) developing drugs to to help treat their cancers bits of patients I like that (laughs) how about you how about you Justin how'd you get started in your career well I'd always had a fascination for medicine and I come from a medical family but I decided to do chemistry and use those skills to be able to make new therapies for for patients so so I read chemistry a fairly traditional route degree PhD then then postdoc and then I went into the biotech sector into pharma um, and then I actually moved into a not-for-profit uh, company. And that's mm. probably where I came across most of the impacts I saw with, with oncology, working with academics, many of them working in, in oncology. And I think there's one project that really sticks in my mind, um, for obvious reasons, as, as, as you'll hear, is the fact that we were working with a, a biotech company to actually help them develop a, a cancer therapy. And they asked us to humanize an antibody, so, so to make an antibody more suitable for human treatment. So, mm-hmm. so we did that. Uh, I produced a, a very interesting effect in, in vitro and in vivo with this antibody. We kind of heard nothing more about it for a few years. And then a press release came out saying that this antibody, which, which is the one that we'd had a hand in, was creating very interesting effects. And that antibody had got a name and it was called Pembrolizumab. Uh, so we were one of the, the, the companies that were, were starting out in the immuno-oncology space. So really fascinating to get into that space. So I've, I've been hooked ever since on, on trying to find new treatments for patients in all sorts of therapy areas, including oncology. That's amazing. That must have been really cool to experience. Uh, absolutely. I mean, at, at the time, it, it was another project, another interesting project. Mm-hmm. But when you suddenly realize the enormity of, of the impact of what this treatment is doing to, to patients, it, you know, it's a fabulous feeling to think that as a company, we had a hand in this, albeit a small part of this whole process. But to be mm-hmm. able to say we've had this hand in actually saving patients' lives, it's a tremendous feeling. Yeah, Absolutely. 
So for both of you, how has our approach to cancer research changed uh, in the past decade or so? So like, are we still focusing on radiation therapies or have cell and gene therapies taken over? Sounds like you both have kind of a broad range of research experience. So you'd probably be able to cover this really well. Yes. So uh, from what Justin says about pembrolizumab and the antibodies that against this protein called PD-1, the big revolution over the past 10 years or so has been the introduction of immuno-oncology. So that's the understanding of how cancers become resistant or invisible to the immune system. So what these antibodies do is encourage a patient's own immune system to actually treat the tumours. So Pembrolizumab was the first, or well, one of the first PD-1 antibodies. There's nivolumab. We've now got CTLA-4 antibodies. We've got LAG-3 antibodies. And all of these antibodies are designed to enhance and prolong the patient's immune response against their own tumour. So this has been a, a massive paradigm shift, if you like, in, in the treatment of cancer is that we're now seeing prolonged responses and even cures in, in patients who've got no hope before. So melanoma patients, uh, very advanced melanoma patients are surviving for many years these days and, and lung cancer. It's not perfect by any means, but it's been the biggest revolution in the past, I'd say, 10, 15 years. And, and I've been working in cancer research for a long time. So, mm -hmm. Justin, you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think I would definitely agree with the, the change that's, that's brought about cancer therapy. But I think there are other things which have also come to light. I mean, there's this idea of personalised cancer care, of trying to match treatments to specific patients and their specific tumour and their situation, I think is really revolutionising the way that we consider the patient as well as the tumour itself and the disease. It's not just one disease, it's a whole range of different attributes you have to consider alongside the individual patient and their cancer. And this runs alongside diagnostics. I mean, we have far better screening programs now, a much better understanding of genetics and, and how we can profile patients and their tumours. And you mentioned radiation. Of course, mm -hmm. we've now moved into proton beam therapy, which is an alternative to standard radiation. I mean, it's a, it's a high energy, highly focused beam that actually really targets the tumour extremely specifically. And so you get very strong effects against the tumour without really risking too much mm. impact on normal cells which is where radiation has its issues. So proton beam, I think, is producing remarkable effects, particularly in some, some of the brain tumours we hear about in the news of young children who've undergone this therapy, which is, which is remarkable, really, and that, that's how it's changing. Yeah. Uh, I, when we talk about oncology, I mean, uh, I'd like to you know, specify we're not just talking about cures, we're also talking about improvements in treatment, improvements in pain management. What you said just reminded me, I had a friend who actually came on the podcast and talked about her cancer journey. She unfortunately died during, during quarantine. But before she did, they were giving her radiation, not in an attempt to save her because she was terminal at that point, but just for pain management. Um, but she couldn't get it in the same place twice, was I believe what she told me. So I think that's really interesting because we usually thought of radiation as something that was trying to be curative and was, you know, harmful to the patient, you know, at, on the course to a cure. But I hadn't thought of it as a treatment for symptoms before. Yeah, it's quite common, particularly for tumours that have spread to the bone and that can be very, very painful. Then uh, a couple of uh, 
of fractions of radiation can really reduce that bone pain. It's a very uh, useful part of the uh, cancer treatment pathway, mm-hmm. as well as being curative for some for some tumours. So radiation therapies combined with chemotherapy for treatment of rectal cancer patients, mm-hmm. and it can be curative. So, yes. Hmm. We shouldn't, of course, forget surgery, which is uh, obviously one of the mainstays of of cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are big advances in the surgery field with the advent of robotics, which allow access where a surgeon can't actually stick his hand, very tight spots, you know, close to arteries or veins or close to the spinal cord. We can now get robotics in that space. And the other thing we look at is fluorescent dyes, which uh, Mm. combine to tumor tissue and you can use them in the removal of brain tissue. So you can use these fluorescent dyes and the surgeon can look at the brain under a UV light and they delineate the tumor margins so that ultimately the surgeon can be sure they're removing all of the tumour, but minimal removal of healthy tissue, which is so important in in, in brain tumours to retain as much healthy tissue as possible. So there are the remarkable changes, I think, over the last uh, 10, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you both see as some of our main challenges in fighting cancer? Justin, you want to start? Yeah, sure. I think from my perspective, one of the key issues is that cancer has this ability to metastasize, so mm-hmm. it spreads. So if cancer didn't spread, it didn't metastasize, it wouldn't nearly be such a big issue that it is. The problem is, is you get a tumor and it, and it moves to your lymph nodes, it moves around your body, and suddenly a patient can have many, many different tumors around their body, which then becomes sort of untreatable in many cases, and it moves into the bone, into the brain. If it didn't metastasize, if we could stop it from metastasizing, which is a real challenge, then I think that that cancer wouldn't strike the fear into people that it does nowadays. Mm. And I still think alongside that, we're still seeing patients at much too late a stage. Uh, We see patients routinely at stage three, stage four tumors. If we could catch them much earlier by diagnosis, Mm-hmm. using uh, you know, diagnostic tests which are highly sensitive and be able to pick up cancers at stage one or, or even before they've even formed a tumour themselves, then I think we have a much better chance of producing cures for people. What do you think, Elizabeth? What are some challenges that you've seen? Yeah, the challenges are resistance to treatment. My own area of particular tumour of interest is breast cancer and there you see that uh, patients become resistant to the whatever treatment you throw at them particularly for hormone treatment in breast cancer patients but you see it in lung cancer as well with the acquisition of new mutations in targets that evade treatments that's been given so there's some fantastic papers that have just come out that plot the genetic changes in tumors throughout a patient's treatment journey if you like so they've Hmm. had had sequential tumor biopsies and look to see what happens and i think (laughs) Basically, uh, it's provided proof that Darwin existed, but the, it is selection of the fittest. So if you yeah. if you provide a selection pressure like a treatment, then cancer cells are so plastic, you know, they don't have the normal controls to prevent mutations. So they develop new mutations that mean that they've become resistant to treatment. And we need to know how to treat that. Do we give a, you know, a sort of a massive all-encompassing treatment at the beginning or do you try and manage the resistance as as it comes along so with breast cancer patients you can often cycle 
patients through different endocrine therapies. So they'll start with one, become resistant. You give another, become resistant. And sometimes you can circle back and start the same treatment again. So it's, it's about perhaps managing the disease rather than trying to cure it. Hmm. Interesting. But it is the, as, as we say, the cancers are incredibly plastic. They're able to mutate very easily. And of course, the cancer cells that have got mutations that allow them to escape treatment will grow and overtake the other cancer cells that are present. So it's, a, it's an ever-evolving landscape. Yeah. Well, Justin, what currently are research priorities for oncology? I think for me, it's really about better understanding the cancer pathways and, and what drives the tumour both to appear, but also to uh, to grow, to spread. As uh, Elizabeth said, you know, what makes them from a homogeneous tumour into a heterogeneous tumour? So really what drives this this disease in the way that it does and what drives the resistance? So it's it's really better understanding of that. And then exploration to the genetics of cancer and how that links into the genetics of the patient that the, the cancer is in and how those two work together to create this devastating disease. And maybe better understanding of that will allow us to create new cures and new ways of approaching this disease and, and tackling it and eradicating it from that patient. Hmm. And what do you think, Elizabeth? Yes, I think we we talked about genetics of cancer and cancer pathways and drivers and what we're starting to understand. It's not just mutations in in the DNA itself. It's mutations or alterations in other pathways that might alter the how DNA is transcribed and which genes are expressed. So there's a whole area of what's called epigenetics. What, what are the other pathways that, that can alter gene expression or silence certain genes? So there's a, a massive amount of work that still needs yeah. to be done into it, you know, drilling down not only in individual mutations, but also how those mutations are transcribed and translated into proteins and what that means for the function of the cancer cells. So there's a still a huge amount of work to be done. And, you know, maybe this is a depressing question, but does it seem like a giant pile of work that we have the tools to do eventually? Or are there aspects of that work that we still haven't developed the proper research tools to even look at? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I think we are developing the tools. And I think we may talk a little later about some of the artificial intelligence and machine learning aspects of, of research that, that are coming into research these days, the massive amounts of data that have been generated from looking at profiles of changes in gene expression and we're developing the tools that we're still a long way from understanding all of the pathways but we're certainly getting the tools into some kind of order and and with the advances in computing and machine learning and artificial intelligence I, I don't doubt that we'll develop str uh, better tools and more powerful tools for for looking at these very very complex pathways and, and drivers of cancer okay well that's good <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think just to add to, to what Elizabeth said, I mean, for me, it, it, it does feel like a bit of a mountain to climb. Mm -hmm. It's a disease that every time you throw something at it that you think works, the disease seems to find a way to escape yeah. uh, and, and keep on coming back and growing. 
So we have to, to, to work harder, faster and smarter to be able to try and get ahead of cancer and to be able to, to deal with it. And there are some things that, that we may talk about later in the diagnostics field that might mm-hmm. help us do that. Yeah. So Elizabeth, can you give me an example of one of the more promising breakthroughs in the past decade, just to pep things up a little bit? <laughs> so I suppose one of the most, we already talked about the immune oncology field and, and the changes that have come about with the introduction of the antibodies that G up, if you like, your immune system. But the next generation of those therapies are, are what are called cellular therapies. So these are the CAR T therapies people may have heard about, CAR NK therapies. Mm-hmm. And this is where you take a patient's own T cells. So these are immune cells that um, you take from your, your patients. So the T cells are the, are the cells that attack and kill tumours, but in most patients, they're not active you know, for various reasons, some of which we don't know. So what you do is you take your, own, your patient's own T cells and you engineer them to recognise the tumour. So you introduce a, a binding protein that will bind to the tumour. So you're bringing the patient's own T cells to the tumour. And there has been some absolutely fantastic responses and very durable responses in hmm. children with acute lymphocytic leukaemia, for example, who'd failed all kinds of therapies beforehand. Patients with lymphoma, there's now some quite durable responses there. So CAR-T therapies are one of the more exciting introductions that they're not without risks they do have side effects which we're understanding how to how to manage but revolutionary for some tumor types um better for blood cancer types but uh, still understanding how to use them for solid tumors but that's one of the most exciting therapies and there are other approaches for bringing the patient's immune system into the tumor so what are called bispecific antibodies, one arm of which recognises the tumour, the other arm of which recognises the patient's immune system, and and they bring the two together. So there's a lot of uh, exciting new data that are coming out, lots of new registrations with the FDA, which uh, bring the patient's immune system to the tumour. What do you think, Justin? What are your, some of your favorite breakthroughs? So, so I, I, I couldn't agree more with, with Liz about the, the immuno-oncology space. I mean, to put it into context, I remember when I first heard about this, although the company I was in before, before Charles River, obviously being involved in a small extent with a pembrolizumab story, I remember I was driving home from work. It, it was a winter, dark, wet night, I think it was, on one of the motorways in the, in the UK. And there was a radio program, you know, a podcast, much like this on. And they had a cancer patient on there. Uh, and he told us this story about how he had stage four melanoma, so skin cancer. Mm-hmm. He had um, lumps all over his, his body, particularly his neck and his back. And he'd been asked in for a clinical trial on one of these new immune therapies. And he, he went in with hope, but, but not expecting a, a great result. And he had his, um, uh, his infusion. He went home and he said that he was watching television that very night. And uh, his wife turned to him and said, that lump on your neck, that looks a bit different. Has something happened? And he said, you know, that's really odd you say that because I'm itching all over. I don't know what's going on. And he said within days, his lumps had started to dissolve away. Wow. They'd changed size. They'd, they'd, they'd changed color. They'd started to dissolve away. Uh, and within three months later, he had a scan and he was clear of cancer. 
Wow. And that, to my mind, was absolute amazing moment to listen to that and realize the power of the immune system. Yeah. Well, that also highlights the importance of clinical trials. Um, I, my friend actually participated in a clinical trial after she knew she was terminal and she knew that it wasn't going to really do anything for her, but she wanted to do something that would lead to data that would help other people. And so even, even at that stage, participating in a clinical trial like that can lead to such incredible results to help other people down the road. Absolutely. And, you know, we're very, very grateful to those patients who do come onto the clinical trials particularly the phase one clinical trials where there's little hope that the treatment will work, but they, so many patients just want to, to be helpful to the next generation of patients mm -hmm. and, and you know, will participate in these studies. So on the other hand, what don't we know? It's an impossible question to answer, but what are some <laughs> of our oncology blind spots? That's a bit like that Donald Rumsfeld question, isn't it? <laughs> we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, for, you know, one of the big issues is that not all patients respond to, to treatment. So you can have some patients or you can have a group of patients whose tumours look exactly the same, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of some of the factors that we look at, but they don't respond in the same way. And we were talking about pembrolizumab earlier, uh, this PD-1 antibody, and really it, it depends on the tumour type, but really only about 30% of patients respond to the treatment. The ones that respond have fantastic responses, but there are other patients who so, show no response at all, and we don't fully understand why that is. We know that there are other cells in the immune system that prevent or that shield the tumours. There are other factors in the tumour environment that, that make it uh, blind or to the patient's immune system. But we don't fully understand what the interplay is between the tumour cells and the patient's immune system and also the environment environment around the you know in which the tumor is embedded so trying to understand why some patients don't respond is is very important and this may come down to what julian has just mentioned before which was diagnostics about personalized medicine at some stage in the future hopefully we will have a way of saying well your tumor will respond to this or it won't respond to that based on the factors that we see in your tumor or, or in the tumor environments and we see it, I've seen it a lot in, in breast cancer. Some patients will never respond to a treatment, even though their tumours look exactly the same as, as a patient who did respond. And we still don't fully understand why, but mm -hmm. it probably comes back to the fact that, that tumours are incredibly plastic and, and can, can evade any kind of treatment eventually. Yeah. What about you, Justin? What don't you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I think... Going along with, with what Elizabeth said, I think some of the issues really are about why some particular tumour types are so difficult to treat. Pancreatic cancer, esophageal cancer, um, incredibly difficult to treat. Uh, and I think that we don't really understand why they don't respond to treatment in many cases. In some cases, it's because these uh, tumours, such as pancreatic uh, cancer, appears very late because pancreatic cancer is a silent cancer. You don't really feel anything different until the tumor starts to metastasize and spread. This comes back to the point earlier. If it didn't spread, it wouldn't be such a problem. But the fact is, that's when patients appear 
is because it's too late. It's stage three, stage four cancer. And by that time, it's gone too far and there's little that can, can be done. So it all comes down to my mind about diagnosis and understanding how we can get to these patients earlier. And then we might have a chance against some of these very refractory tumors. Hmm. Well, speaking of diagnosis and other, you know, <laughs> piles of data issues, we hear a lot about big data and AI. How are these changing the face of cancer diagnosis and treatment? I'm going to be a lot more talk about a very pragmatic approach to big data. And, Good. <laughs> <laughs> which is about recording what happens to patients. So mm. a paper appeared very recently in British Medical Journal, and it was a study of 500,000 breast cancer patients treated in the UK. It was about the changes in survival over time. And it's only been made possible because we've been recording data about patients forever. So all mm -hmm. cancer patients are recorded on a database somewhere in the UK. And that's put together with the type of tumour and, and the treatment they had and the outcome. This analysis of 500,000 breast cancer patients has shown the massive changes and beneficial changes in five-year survival after being diagnosed with breast cancer. So since 1993, the five-year survival rate for patients who were diagnosed and treated in 1993 is of the order of, I think, about 75%. Now, mm. if you were diagnosed in the year 2010, your five-year survival rate is more than 90%, more than 95%. So the changes and that that doesn't really say why those changes have happened but it shows that they are happening and it's probably a, a result of increases in mammography so screening for breast cancer so it's caught early but also mm -hmm. all of the improvements in treatment that we've seen over those years so early treatment after surgery new targeted therapies so these have all resulted in in a massive increase in in overall survival and that's that's big data but it's perhaps not big data as we think about it so <laughs> but it's a, a massive achievement yeah what do you think justin what do you think are the promises of ai so, so, so I think in terms of genetics and AI, I mean, to start with genetics, I think we're getting a better understanding about what's causing cancer. We, we know there are some specific cancer genes and we know that we can screen for these. And we know that if you do have one of these genes, then it allows people to make lifestyle choices about how they're going to mitigate against that cancer risk. There, you know, there have been numerous people who've, who've done this kind of thing. I, I, I guess in the in the public domain, someone like Angelina Jolie, who was um, BRCA2 positive, she elected to have a mastectomy because she'd had close relatives who'd, who died of cancer. So we're starting to see those opportunities of making that choice uh, to, to, to people, which I think is important. Mm -hmm. And I think to extend that further, we're starting to understand what a genetic profile of a cancer risk looks like. And you can, uh, nowadays, you can actually, for less than $200, you can send off a sample of saliva to one of these um, uh, sites that look at look at your ancestry, your, uh, and, and you can get a whole range of potential risk factors against certain diseases. Now, imagine if that happened for cancer, and you could do that, and you could send it off, and you would get your risk factors for certain types of cancers. It means that you can take control of your life, and you can make lifestyle choices uh, about what you might do. For example, if you have a risk of lung cancer, 
well, for goodness sake, don't smoke, or at least if you do smoke, stop, yeah. um, because these allow you to, to, to empower yourself. In terms of AI, I think we're starting to see some significant advances in the clinical situation. For example, AI has proven reliable, if not more so than a human, at reading scans of, of, of uh, um, mammograms. Mm, yes. detecting cancer so so we know this is a good thing to do because first of all it removes removes human error so we're unlikely to miss anything and secondly machines can work 24 7 so it reduces diagnostic timelines uh for those women who come in and have mammograms and obviously there's that uh that time between you've had the scan when do i get my results and i think for any disease when you have a a diagnostic test it's that that worry until you get the result and we can reduce that time uh, with much reduced error levels so I think these are the way the AI is starting to have an impact a real impact on patients yeah I can be a little bit of an optimistic skeptic sometimes especially when it comes to things like AI so I do feel like sometimes they overpromise what they can deliver but the one area like you said that seems to be extremely useful and promising is analyzing those images because you're right. I mean, the computer, for some reason, machine learning is really good at learning how to look at images and figure out what it's looking at, which is pretty awesome. That's exactly right. And of course, a lot of this is built on things like face recognition software, mm -hmm. um, which around the world, all security services use and have used mm -hmm. for some time. So I've been developing this to recognize images. So repurposing some of these technologies for benefit in the human health situation, I think, is 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 fantastic to see. Yeah. I mean, a computer just sees data. It doesn't really know or care what the data is actually representing. It's just doing the math for you. That, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. But, but please let there be a doctor at the other end who can... Oh, my God. The, yes, absolutely. The, human, <laughs> the empathy and the... And, uh, absolutely need the human element for sure. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that, you know, AI can do all these very rapid calculations and look for patterns and things, but mm -hmm. at, at the end of the day, they can't really put the interpretation on the data. They can tell you what the data are, but what it means in terms of cancer treatment and cancer biology, I think we still need humans to be present. Yeah, but any of the busy work that AI can take off the doctor's yeah. minds is a yeah. net gain for the exactly. patient. So. Yeah. Yeah. so do either of you ever see a world without cancer? Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a big one. Um, <laughs> rather depressingly, I think my answer is no. Uh, and I'll tell you why. It's because cancer is driven primarily by mutations in our DNA. Mm -hmm. uh, and Mutations in our DNA are hardwired hard into us because of our evolutionary process. Mm -hmm. so, so we make advances in evolution throughout history by someone creates a beneficial mutation in their DNA and they can suddenly do something or, or, or behave in a way that's, that's beneficial. It's, it's exactly as Elizabeth said earlier, it's about the Darwinian process. Mm -hmm. So I see that mutation is hardwired into us. So I don't see a world without cancer, but I do see a world with better diagnosis, better treatments and better life choices uh, that we can offer to patients. So I do see the impact of cancer reducing, but I don't see a world without it. Yeah, sadly, I do agree that. Uh, and in fact, there's an interesting piece of data that suggests that you accumulate a third of your lifetime mutations before you're even born. And then the other third in childhood and adolescence. So mutation comes along with the uh, with DNA replication. It's it's inescapable. 
um, you can do a lot to reduce the effects of mutations. And, and one area that, that's possibly not as well looked at is, is prevention of cancer or mm-hmm. strategies to mitigate the effects of, of, of lifestyles that lead to cancer. So, you know, for example, for breast cancer, changes in lifestyle mean that there's an increase in risk factors associated with pregnancy and breastfeeding and and mm-hmm. uh, menopause. So, you know, can we evolve some treatments that will will mitigate the effects of those risk factors for cancer? So, yes, it's. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to be able to escape cancer. And, and throughout evolution, you can see in in fossil records that people had cancer even very early days so it's here to stay unfortunately but with our better techniques better diagnosis and treatments hopefully will it will be a disease that people can live with rather than die from well thank you both so much for joining me this has been really fascinating i appreciate your expertise on this topic very welcome it's been a pleasure thank you okay thank you